<laughs> They're exporting it to Cambodia, I mean to uh, Vietnam and to Thailand, and the supply is not meeting the demand. So the price has gone up four times. Rat meat doesn't really appeal to us, though Americans will be eating it shortly. But uh, when the rats get scarce, the price goes up, and the same is true of wheat and chicken and eggs and everything else. So let's be aware that things are getting pretty tight in various places around the world, and there's, there's certainly a barometer there. I never thought I'd use rat meat as something to bring out a point, but there it is. All right, let's get back to Genesis today. We've been studying about our fathers. The, the sermonette went along those lines as well. I, I thought that was excellent and timely in that sense, that, to pick out King Josiah and the, the things that he did even from age eight on. You know, the proverb does say that even a child is known by the things that he does, and it's never too early to start, obviously. Man, a boy, eight years old, starting to rule, and he was tearing down the groves and getting rid of the temples of Baal and Dagon by the time he was 20. Uh, I read on there a little bit in Second Chronicles 34, and I, I've, of course a sermonette can only be so long, but when they read the law to him and the covenant that they'd made, he rent his clothes because it was so obvious that Israel was not anywhere near what they had agreed to be with God. And reading on down there, it said he put their feet to the fire. He made them stand to it, is the way it reads in the King James Version. In other words, he didn't just repent himself, but he said, you people are going to straighten up. Of course, he was the king, and he could do that. But God told him that these people will not repent. He says, I'll let you to go to your grave in peace before I bring this death and destruction upon them. In some ways, it reminded me of Herbert Armstrong in the early years trying to get this nation to repent and the world to repent, and they weren't having anything of it. God did call a few, really, by comparison to the total population, and the nation as a whole was not about to repent and change and walk according to God's ways. Now, Herbert Armstrong didn't understand everything we do today, but he did understand the basic way of God, and people were not willing to even consider the basics. And he let him die more or less in peace. There were troubles in the church kingdom, if you will, at the time he died, and those certainly came out a little later on. Uh, good king, bad king, just like ancient Israel. Tukachis came on the scene, everything went downhill. So now, we're getting the word of God back out, aren't we? We'd kind of put it on the shelf for a long time and let it grow dust like the rest of the nation had done. Now we're getting it out, dusting it off. We're going through various parts of it. And I know before we're done, we might get through every bit of it. We'll see. But sometimes I get pretty tough on me and pretty tough on you, tough on all of us and what we need to do and what we need to change and how we need to grow 
and things we need to look into to see if we're doing them right or not. Uh, so we have to have our feet put to the fire. We have to stand to it. It doesn't do any good for all the speakers to scream and yell all we want to uh, if we don't stand to it and begin to do something about it. And I, I think that this group is working at doing something about it. We may not be where we need to be yet, but I do think that we're working at it. And that means a lot to God. Attitude is an awful lot of it. Will we turn a deaf ear? Will we shrug our shoulders or draw back the shoulder, as I think Hosea or Amos says, or plant all four feet, as Hosea certainly says, like a backsliding heifer, and not allow ourselves to come along? And it's all about attitude. That's what that whole analogy is about. If you teach a heifer by putting a collar around their neck and taking time to get them to learn to lead, they'll follow that anywhere you want to go. They lead easily. Horse the same way. But if you just throw a loop around their neck for the first time and start tugging on it, they'll plant all four feet and you'll have a major struggle on your hands. Well, we came to God through Worldwide Church of God, and supposedly there we yielded and were broke to leave. But then when we start getting tougher and saying, yeah, well, we're giving it lip service, but we're not really doing what we ought to be doing, then sometimes we want to plant our feet because our rebellious human nature doesn't want to do what needs to be done. So that's the way we have to look at it. I talked to a young couple earlier this week who have some marriage plans, and I said we need to go into history and find out what are traditions of Baal and Egypt and Nimrod and Semiramis rather than just going along with the traditions that we have. I made some mention of that some time back, and I want to study into it over these next months and ask them to do the same. Let's find out. Let's do it right. Let's don't just do it because that's the way it's done in America. There's very little done right in America. Josiah found out there was very little done right in ancient Israel. So things had to be changed. And we don't like change. We just don't. So let's try in every aspect of life to get things right. When Josiah saw what was really true, he rent his clothes, just ripped them. He couldn't abide what he had heard. Now we need to rip our mental ones and be sure we get everything right, no matter what the subject might be. Do it God's way. Anyway, let's see. We got down to chapter 46 last time. And Israel, or Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So even as Jacob's planning on going into Egypt and has packed his stuff and left, he takes time, even though his animals, his family, are beginning to start to go hungry, he stopped to give time and energy and 
honor to God. And God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. That is the kind of response God looks for. I'm here. What do you need? What can I do? How can I help? That is the ready mind spoken of in the New Testament that we see in our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and later on, others. I'm ready. Whatever you want done, I'm here to do. And in fact, he had already packed up and left the land that he loved. Actually, he was in the land of Canaan. He was in the land that had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and then on to him. He was already in the promised land. And yet here he had instruction to leave it. Joseph had sent word, leave Canaan, come to Egypt. Now that's strange and on the face of it, isn't it? Leave the land promised to Abraham and Isaac that's been given to you and come to Egypt. I may have thought, well, boy, I don't know. But that's where the food was and that's where Joseph was and God had worked it out so the circumstances indicated that's what he should do. And he acted upon it before he even got confirmation from God that it was what God wanted. But it was, you'll note, after he had stopped at Beersheba to inquire of God, to worship God, to seek God's will and his face, that he got an answer. Seek and you will find. Ask and it shall be given. So I'm sure that he had a lot of different emotions running through his head, even as I did and you did, before we began to consider the moves that we have made. I had to consider deeply leaving Arizona some years ago and going back to Alaska. And then I had to seriously consider leaving Alaska to go to North Carolina because it seemed to be where God would have me go. And then I really had a tussle deciding whether to leave North Carolina and go to, to Denver, or to Colorado anyway. Uh, but that was not nearly so bad as the tussle with giving up the organization we were in, Church of the Great God at the time, due to the calendar issue, and basically standing on our own. But I saw that it was a truth that would not be accepted there at that time, and it had to be done. But I'll tell you what, I took lots of long walks up the mountain and talked to God and the dog and myself and mumbled a lot, wondering if that was truly the course that had to be taken. I didn't really want to do it. But finally came to grips with it and had to do it. And then to move on out here. I like the high country. I like pine trees and big mountains and cooler weather. And to move out to this desert was not something I would have ever chosen to do on my own. But it's something I saw clearly in the Word of God that had to be done. So we did it. And you began to realize that you had to give up certain things, land, home, family, mates even, give up everything and move out to the desert, a place where most of you would never have come had it not been for knowing 
that God said it needed to be done. So we all counted the cost, didn't we? And I'm sure we all besought God about it. And then decided we better get it done. So when we go back to the fathers, we need to analyze and see what we might not have done that needs to be done in turning to them. But at the same time, it's okay to look at some of the things they did and understand that, yes, we did follow in their footsteps. Yes, we have been obedient. And then turn to God and say, we may lack a lot yet. We may have a lot to learn yet. We may have trials, troubles, tests, and moves forward that may be difficult for us even in the future. But we have done what you instructed us to do, and therefore, please bless us and help us along the path. So we have made some right choices. So I think it's good to, to be encouraged by what we've done right, as well as encouraged to do what we still need yet to accomplish. Sometimes when you see that you've made some progress, it helps encourage you and strengthen you to continue to make progress. But if you can never see any progress, then it becomes very, very difficult. But I do see progress here with this group of people. I've seen a willingness to be led by God's Word. And that's why you came here. You didn't do it because of me. You did it because of what you were hearing. You did it because of what you read in the Word of God, various passages that indicated it needed to be done. So you were willing to do what God said to do. And he takes that into account. He appreciates that. He'd have to. Do we understand that? God has to appreciate you people. He may not have turned his face back in full blessing in some respects yet, but how many people on this earth would do what you have done? Not very many. Not very many at all. And I think that's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> there aren't very many of us. But there will be more later, because they'll see. God is going to teach them to lead. He's going to show them some things that will help them see. Sometimes you really can get a donkey to move better with a carrot than you can with a two-by-four. It does work better in many instances. God is going to show the carrot pretty soon, and then people will begin to realize, hey, I need to go. I need to do. And in a way, didn't he dangle that before Jacob? He put two carrots there. Joseph and grain, the son whom he loved, and food to eat. And Jacob followed those two carrots, using that analogy. Anyway, he said, here I am. I'm ready to do what you wish. I'm ready to lead. Broke to lead. I'm not going to resist. I'm not going to pull away. Some people will lead so far, you know, and then they find what we used to call a sticking point something that stops them. You know, it can be just like an oiled machine for a ways, and then you hit a place where there's not any oil in, to them, and that's where they stick. 
That's where they're not going to go fast. Everybody has different sticking points. Different things that would offend them or stop them that are in God's Word. You know, it, it isn't good enough to accept 60, 70, 80, 90 percent of God's way. We're not to let any of His words drop to the ground. And I hope that we have gotten rid of our sticking points, a point which we will not go past. I'll do this, 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 and this, but if you ask me to do that, I'm out. Wrong approach. Wrong approach. It wasn't Jacob's approach. Here I am. What do you want? Anything you say. I'll go to Egypt. I'll do anything you say. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Fear not to go down to the Egypt, for I will there make of you a great nation. Now, he was in Canaan, but there's some dynamics that were going on that would not have worked had God not taken them down into Egypt. It was there that he planned to make them a great nation. Even as he planned to make the United States, Ephraim, a great nation from the inception. But we were going to become a great nation under a Babylonian government in Washington, D.C., we're Israel, but we're under Babylon. And virtually everything coming out of Washington is anti-God in some form or fashion. Some of our founding fathers did have some noble ideas, and they did try to fashion some things after God's Word, and did manage to do that. But they did not prevail. Some of those who got off as pilgrims, tried to keep the feasts and the Sabbath, but they did not prevail. Just as those who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution did not prevail. And Washington got laid out in Babylonian Masonic fashion because those people prevailed. And we've been under that ever since, except the few of us who have been allowed opportunity to escape Babylon. And it's been a long, hard road trying to get out, hasn't it? Well, he was going to make a great nation of them there, and they were going to be there 400 years while they grew in size. And they were going to go through a great deal of, of trouble and enslavement, just as we have today. And then God was going to make a deliverance, just as God is today. So there was a pattern being laid out here that we'll see as we go on in the story, because it, it occurred to me this morning, and it's been a question niggling at my mind for some time, why did God make Israel go into Egypt? Why, is the question. And Abraham had gone down to Egypt. Jacob had gone to Egypt. Joseph was in Egypt. Moses was in Egypt, left and came back and had to leave again. Christ went down into Egypt. There are a lot of cases where God had his chosen ones go down into Egypt for whatever reasons. And then yet we have instruction in Isaiah that very clearly says, do not go down into Egypt. I'm not going to put that whole story together, though I did think about it a bit, and I think I have some beginnings of answers to the question. But that's getting ahead of the story, so we'll get there later on. But uh, that seemed to be a pattern forming here. 
through all these leaders that they had to go into Egypt. There were things they had to learn, and then they had to go through the arduous process of coming out of it. It was not easy. Anyway, God told him right off, I'm going to make you a great nation there. Now, Abraham and Isaac had already had the instruction and the promise from God that they'd become as the sands of the sea. So he knew they had to become a great people. And now God gives him a little more detail and says, it's going to happen in Egypt. Now God gives us a little detail. Then he gives us a little more insight. He gives us a little more insight. And hasn't he been doing that over the last years? We get a little more. Then we get a little more of the picture. And we understand it a little better. And the details begin to happen. And we move forward a little at a time. God didn't lay out the whole story to us immediately. It's, it's in the book here, but we didn't understand all of it at once. So it's come here a little, there a little, and the picture is getting more detailed as we go on. <clears throat> Here's the encouraging part. I will go down with you to Egypt. Now, didn't he tell us in Micah 4 that if we would leave the cities and go dwell in the fields, the wilderness area, that he would deliver us there? Micah 4, about verse 8 or 9, 10, whichever one it is. Yes, he did, along with other promises. Same in Zephaniah 2. Gather yourselves together, get away from it, and there, if you have the right attitude, I will deliver you. So he's made promises just like he did to Jacob. Now, did he follow through with his promise to Jacob? Yes, he did then will he follow through with his promises he made to us when he drew us out here? Yes, he will. He's God. He said he will bring that blessing in Isaiah 54, and it's just like the rainbow to Noah, the covenant he will keep. We still see that rainbow now, don't we? It still appears. That shows that God keeps his word. There had been no rainbow until that time. Then there was, and today there is. I will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. Just as surely as you go down there, Jacob, I'm going to bring you back out, and Joseph shall put his hand upon your eyes. You're going to die in peace, and your own son in Egypt is going to pull your eyelids down when you die. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob, and all his seed with him. Now there may come a time when we leave, and we don't take anything. You don't go back to the house and get it, but when we came out here, he said there in Isaiah 52, Go not in haste. There will be a time when it is in haste in Revelation 12, but Isaiah 51, no, 52, end of it, does say, go not in haste. So it can't be talking about the same two times. Separate removals, separate trips. One, you're not in a hurry, uh, pack your stuff and go. That's what we all did, and that's what these two gals that just came here did. They packed all their stuff, and then I think they packed a little more after that. Did you go buy some extra stuff to put in that truck trailer? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that's that way with all of us, you know. 
you can't leave this and you can't leave that, and boy, we get overwhelmed with stuff, don't we? I made trip after trip to Colorado, partly because my wife had not yet moved out. We still had the house to get rid of. So every time I went, I looked around for stuff I could bring. And stuff, some stuff got brought that wouldn't have been brought, except I was running back and forth anyway. So I well, might as well haul that, got nothing else to haul. So we wound up with more stuff than we needed. Anyway, uh, there are two separate times that are being talked about here, very obviously. So they were allowed to bring their things. Verse 7, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. And then it gives the names of all those who came, and I don't know that for the purposes we have right now I need to go through and read all those. Uh, they are listed, and I'm sure God has a reason for them being in there, but they don't do a whole lot at the moment for us turning to God and to our fathers of the past and doing things the way they did. So I'm not going to read through that. Uh, verse 19, it says, The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, will pick up that much thread anyway, since we're of the children of, of Joseph, essentially. I mean, not every one of us is. We have different racial mixtures and so on, and maybe from here and there. But I think that generally, when God caused people to move here from Europe to take back the land that had been given to us originally, that he brought mostly Ephraimites over here because whole villages picked up and moved, not just an individual here and there. So wherever there were pockets of Joseph, or specifically Ephraim, in Europe, they just picked up and came over here. So probably most of us are Ephraimite or have some Ephraim in us. Uh, and certainly, if not physically, then we certainly have been grafted in as part of, is of Israel, and there is no difference, male or female, Greek or Jew, or anything else. We're all a part of it today. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt, verse 20, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, which Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. So we'll pick up those two anyway, and notice it does put Manasseh and Ephraim, puts Manasseh first. When we speak and have over the years, have we not always said Ephraim and Manasseh? Isn't that the way we've always done it? Have you ever heard anybody say Manasseh and Ephraim? doesn't come to your tongue that way, does it? In the church, that's the way we've always used it, Ephraim and Manasseh. Here it has it the opposite. We'll see why a little later on. Manasseh was the firstborn son of Joseph. Ephraim was the secondborn. And that's the way that it would have been and stayed had not an intervention occurred. And then it got switched. So we don't say Manasseh and Ephraim today. We say Ephraim and Manasseh because of the switch that occurred. And it is a very meaningful switch that occurred, as we shall see. Anyway, down to verse 26 and 27 shows that there were... Seventy who came out of Egypt, mentioned 75 in Acts 7.14, but uh, this can be resolved, uh, an apparent contradiction, when you figure out who came, who was already in Egypt, and which wives died, and so on, and the, the statement in Acts is correct, as is the statement here in Genesis, when you understand the whole story, and who 
Luke was speaking of in Acts and who uh, Moses was speaking of here in the book of Genesis. So that is not a contradiction. I'm not going into the detail of it right now. Uh, probably most any commentary can do that for you. And I'm more interested in the principles and the attitudes and the approach than I am in that type of technicality. When you don't have anything else to study and it become perfect, then you need to get into technicalities more, I guess, because then you don't have anything to do but look at technicalities. Uh, that's part of my justification for saying I'm not one of those technical-minded people. I'm just not, never have been, I doubt ever will be. Uh, I don't care how it works. All I want to know is does it work? Some people are concerned about all the little things inside to make it work, and there need to be that kind of people so they can fix it if something goes wrong. But I'm not one of those. All I want to know is does it work, and can you make it work? And exactly what you have to do to make it work is neither here nor there to me. I just want the bottom line. Uh, so I'm non-technical, if you hadn't noticed. But on the other hand, I usually quit pretty much on time instead of going on for four or five hours with ad nauseum technicalities. So, you know, it takes all kinds. It really does. And it... That's what makes things work. If you have somebody that can do this, somebody can do that, and somebody that can do something else, you can make everything work right. But we're not all alike. And uh, we, we should not be judgmental of one another if we're not all alike. Because if we were all alike, it would be a pretty dull world. So we do do things differently. Verse 28, and he sent Judah before him to Joseph to direct his face to Goshen. So he sent Joseph out there to give them to be a guide. And they came into the land of Goshen, the most fertile area of Egypt. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen and presented himself to him. He didn't make him go to the capital and go through all the trappings. He went there, let him get settled in a little bit and rest up from the trip before he took him before Pharaoh. So he went to him, took him to Goshen, and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. They'd been separated for a long, long time, and Jacob had thought he was dead and he'd missed his father, and uh, it was a very, very emotional thing when they got back together, and they just held on to each other. That's a good emotion, a right emotion wasn't perfunctory. It was, it was real and genuine. That's the kind of emotion we need. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face, because you are yet alive. Now he didn't die then, but he's, I think what he was saying is, I'm willing to die now. This, this is the greatest thing that could have happened in my life, is that I could re be reunited with a son that I thought was dead, now I'm, I'm ready to die after that. God chose to let him live another 17 years, and I'm sure he appreciated and enjoyed seeing his grandchildren, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, or Manasseh and Ephraim at this point in the story, uh, and Dan them up on his knees. He didn't really want to die, but he said, I'm willing now. Uh, you know, this is, this is the peak. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh and say to him, 
my brother and my father, my brethren in my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come to me. The men are shepherds, for the trade has been to feed cattle, and they have brought their flocks and their herds, and all that they have. It shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you, and shall say, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's trade has been about cattle from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You don't always hide what you are. He said, you tell them you're shepherds. And he knew that they would be despised because they were cattlemen. Now the cattlemen in this country despise the ranchers. And the cattlemen, cert- I mean the farmers, and the ranchers certainly despise the shepherds, the sheepmen. We had cattle and sheep wars going on in the West for years. And to some degree, those feelings are still there. But the Egyptians hated cattlemen and shepherds. But he wanted them to be in the land of Goshen, which was good grazing land. You tell them you're shepherds, that's where they'll send you. It's kind of like Br'er Rabbit. You remember the old story? Don't send me into that briar patch. Don't, please, don't send me there. That's where he wanted to go. So protest that you're cattlemen and they'll send you where you want to go, where you should be. But what a way to come into the country. They were sure to get a, a hearty welcome, weren't they, from the Egyptians around them who despised the smell of sheep and cattle. Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan, and they're in Goshen now. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them to Pharaoh. Picked out five of the brothers that he thought might be able to go before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they've been coached. They said, Uh... Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. Reminds me of court when we were having that hearing with about planning and zoning. Uh, we had an agricultural exemption from planning and zoning. And uh, I called some of our witnesses and tried to get them to say, yeah, we're shepherds, we're cattlemen, we're here for agriculture. That's the purpose. That's the reason we're here is to have a community and take care of ourselves, uh, be able to grow our own food, uh, vegetables and meat and eggs, and whatever else, and milk. Those are the things we should be doing. That's what we're here to do. We need to get ourselves, as soon as possible, weaned away from the stores in St. George and wherever. We need to become as self-sufficient as possible. And we're not reading that just from the Bible. There are people in the world now I read an article just the other day. Someone was urging people to get out of the cities. You must get out of the city and go dwell out in the country where you can take care of yourself and grow your own food because there isn't going to be any food and they're going to trap you in the cities and there you will be gathered together and either killed if you're not young and hardy or taken into captivity and made into slaves if you are. People understand that this is about to happen. And they don't know anything about God. Nothing. But they see the handwriting on the wall. They know it is coming. And the sooner we can become 
independent from this world entirely the better. Now, in some cases, we still, at this point, I don't know how we could do it without having a job in town or somewhere because there are still taxes that have to be paid with money and certain things have to be paid with money. But we are working at getting independent of the system as much as possible, and we may need a lot of God's help to get it done. But let's understand we should be moving in that direction. And every, you know, it's like the tentacles of an octopus that are wrapped around us, and it doesn't want to turn us loose. And you, when you have all eight of those arms around you, maybe I should use a centipede with more legs, but the octopus does grab you, at least in the movies it does. And you can't just pull all eight off at once. You have to work it one at a time. And we need, that's what I'm trying to say is we're headed in a direction. The direction is to get loose as soon as possible to get those tentacles from around us. And the more we depend upon God and the more we make the effort to plant gardens and raise animals and get our own milk and meat and eggs and vegetables and so on, the better off we're going to be. We're working at getting independent on an energy level. But I was thinking the other day, there comes a point where stocking up it can become futile because if the idea is to preserve the culture and society that we have grown up in so that we always will have electricity no matter what happens out there, so that we'll always have this or that that we've always had, it's what we've become, become accustomed to. And if our idea is to preserve in a small way what has been around us, I think we're barking up the wrong tree. Now, to some degree, we may need some of those things, but we need to also understand that we have become very, very spoiled, and that for roughly 59, 5,800 years at least, most of mankind has been without electricity. Man has been without water in the house except for a short time during the Roman era, I suppose, and maybe before the flood. We don't know all the things that they had back then, but it was probably a very advanced civilization, whatever advanced means. We consider ourselves advanced today, but we're not advancing. We're going backward. We're getting sicker, more unhealthy. Uh, it's about to turn inside out on us, and our whole way of life is going to implode, and those services will no longer be there. So there's something that were there as a convenience for a very short while in man's history, and now they are going to be taken away very soon. And I don't think that it is possible for a few people to preserve everything we have become used to over a very long period of time. Now, maybe we can reserve fuel and buy generators and a few things and keep our freezers and refrigerators running for a while. But there will come a point when everything else has collapsed around us that we may not be able to do that unless we can generate all of our own fuel sources. And is that indeed what God would have us do?
because all of these things that we are doing that are advancing society are polluting the planet, and God says, woe to those who pollute the planet. So there may have to be some fundamental changes at some point. And that may be surprising to think about, but uh, we may have to give up a lot of the things that we have come to enjoy that we've been spoiled with, because in the long run they are destroying the atmosphere and the earth, the planet that God gave us. So we need to grasp that and be getting us back, back to the way the Garden of Eden was as much as possible. And God says if we will do that, he will give us the Garden of God and give us the Garden of Eden there in Isaiah. So he'll make up the difference. But let's be sure we are thinking along the right lines. We are not here to preserve what we see around us. We are here to become independent of it, ultimately, and to have a different way of living. God said he will take care of the climate, he will take care of the weeds, he will take care of a lot of things when the time comes. But we have to show, in the meantime, that we are willing to make whatever sacrifices we need to make to try to get back to living off the land the way God intended mankind to live in the first place, not just preserve what we have had. Now, that doesn't mean that I think we ought to all go home tonight and shut off our main breaker and quit our job. That's not what I'm saying. It always, someone will misinterpret what is being said. But we do need to head back to the basics as we can and as circumstances permit and be willing to make that effort. What are we? We're human beings put on this earth by God. We are put here to dress and keep this earth in the way that he wanted Adam and Eve to dress and keep the garden. They failed and mankind with everything modern has failed also. And now we need to find our way out of this mess that we have created and begin to get back to the way God intended things in the first place. And that is a process. I don't think that it's an overnight thing. But we should be moving that direction and becoming as independent as we can because the price of rats is going up. Now that sounds weird because... Those who hear this tape later on will not have heard the announcement before the sermon started, and they'll say, what in the world was that all about? So, maybe I better explain briefly for those who hear this tape a year or two or three or five from now. I just read that the price of rats in Cambodia has quadrupled in price because the food supply is dwindling, and they're still exporting to Thailand and to Vietnam and they're running out of rats, and therefore the price is going up. So I use it here, because the price of everything is going up. And what they're experiencing today in Cambodia, we will be experiencing shortly in this country. So, a lot of those things we have depended upon are going to be gone very shortly. And what I'm saying is, the less and less we depend on them now, the less traumatic it is going to be when they disappear. If you're totally dependent upon them and they go under, where are you going to be? But if you've managed 
to make some changes and become less dependent, then when they go down, the shock is not nearly so great. And if we're moving in the direction that God would have us go, then he said he'll make up the difference. And whatever things that simply are in the way that we can't handle, he will fix. We've gone over those scriptures many times. So let's admit what we are. We're different from the world out there, and we're trying to get separated from that world out there. They went in, said, we're shepherds and we're cattlemen. That made an automatic division between them and the Egyptians, just like that. Bang. We'll treat you different. You're scum, is what they looked upon Israel as. So we've been shepherds. Now, that didn't seem to bother Pharaoh himself. He apparently had a bigger mind than that, and he could even look past some of those cultural things that he had probably believed and been taught. He knew the racist view of the Egyptians. Well, this wasn't necessarily racist. This was occupational. It later became race as Israel grew into a great nation within Egypt. But it started out as an occupational thing where they looked down upon them. Maybe kind of the same way we use throw the word around trailer trash in America. You know, if you're if you're not living in a trailer, every, all those in a trailer are trailer trash. It's the way we tend to look at it in our jokes and so on. It's a cultural thing. Of course, we joined that out here, didn't we? <laughs> That's the way they look at us. I'm sure. It's okay. I think God intended this to be out here living in what we're living in. I really believe that. Anyway, Pharaoh took a broader view. Why? Probably because of his relationship with Joseph. And he had seen how capable Joseph was and Joseph's attitude and approach to things. <coughs> Excuse me. And now he basically had saved Egypt under God's direction by the seven years of plenty and laying it up. Uh, if it had not been for those dreams and Joseph's interpretation, it would have been just like an oil boom in Alaska. Everybody would have made big money, been plenty in prosperity, and they would have blown it like they always have. And that's what Egypt would have done. <clears throat> but God, through Joseph, showed a way to save Egypt. Joseph did it, so Pharaoh had a good attitude toward Joseph. Anyway, they said moreover to Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come, for your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray you, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Verse 5, And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brethren, brethren are come to me, or to you. The land of Egypt is before you. In the best of the land, make your father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if you know any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. So as if there are any ambitious ones there, some movers and shakers that can look after things and really want to grow and learn and, and develop, uh, put them in charge of my cattle. You know, some might have been content just to have their own and not to go beyond that. But always in a group, you have some who want to go above and beyond, who have a certain amount of ambition. So Pharaoh made allowance 
for those who might be ambitious among them and said if they really want to grow and expand and do things well, put them in charge of my flocks and herds. See, I don't think he could have made that statement had he not already known Joseph well. Why would you say, you know, here are a bunch of strangers coming in and you're the lowest of the low being cattlemen and shepherds in the first place, why would I let you do anything? But Joseph had made such an incredible impact that Pharaoh trusted his family. Now let's use the analogy for a moment as if God were Pharaoh. Are we going to make enough impression upon God that when others begin to come, he'll say, you go to those people. They'll take care of you. They'll make sure your needs are fulfilled. I'm going to put them in charge. And you can also be in charge with them. In other words, I'm going to put this remnant together and because of the incredible example that they have made before me, I'm also going to accept them and begin to put them in charge too. And they can be part of the bride of my son, and they can rule the entire world. All my sons, all my children. That's essentially what Pharaoh was saying. I put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And if you have some more ambitious people in your family, let's start out by putting them in charge of the cattle and the sheep. We'll see where it goes from there. I hope we're making that kind of an impression upon God so that he will trust those who follow us enough to say, hey, if they're like those, bring them on. I need more like that. How's that for pressure? <laughs> no? But I think it can be encouraging that what God did with our fathers and how one man who had such an, a positive, upbeat, can-do attitude and approach that wherever he went, he picked up those around him. And if each of us could become that way where we pick up everyone around us, make them feel a little better, whether it's by an outright encouragement or teasing and joking and helping and greasing the skids that way. However, there are many, many different ways <laughs> that we can improve morale and help each other and make each other feel good in a right way, not touchy-feely feel good like the world has in its religion, but the right kind of respect for growth, for doing things right. Sharpening iron so that we all go God's way. Quite an example given here. 7, verse 7, And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. <coughs> Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? He kind of opened a little conversation here to maybe older guys. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years, Few and evil of the days of the years of my life then. Few and evil. He wasn't bragging. 
He wasn't trying to necessarily impress in a wrong way with vanity and ego, but he said, I haven't lived very long, and what life I have lived hasn't been all that great. I'm not a great man. I'm not a wonderful person. I'm just me. So he didn't try to say, I'm just as good as you are, and uh, approach things in a wrong way. And I've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Abraham lived 175. What was Isaac? 140? Something like that. Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. So he made good wishes and salutations and tried to encourage Pharaoh in a right way. And Joseph placed his father and his brothers and gave them for possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramesses. Did he get confused here? It said Goshen before, now it says Ramesses. Well, they were one and the same. Ramesses may have been a particular part of Goshen. But I mentioned that because it has some impact when you get to Exodus 12 and 13. Uh, where it says that they went to Ramses on the day of Passover, Passover day, and they departed Ramses. They were not, they were still in Egypt, in a, in a part of Egypt when they left, or they departed from it. They were in Egypt the whole time. And when they were in Ramses, they were still in Egypt. And that's where they left from. That's where they gathered out of the land of Goshen to a particular spot in Ramesses where they left from. Joseph nourished his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread according to their families. So he, How big's your family? Here's so much bread for you. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore. So the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So the land was not producing, in other words. And the only store or stock of grain was that which Joseph had laid up. So he gathered up all the money. By the time they spent all their money, Pharaoh's house had all the money. And when money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence for the money fails? We don't have any more money. We don't have any food. We're just going to stand right here and wither away and die in front of you. Please give us food. Joseph said, now he was a good steward of that which Pharaoh had put him in charge of. And he was going to make sure that Pharaoh prospered at the same time, he was concerned that the people would be preserved. So he said, give your cattle, and I will give you for your cattle if money fails. So instead of money, I'll take cows in trade, sheep, goats in trade. And they brought their cattle to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herds, for the asses, and he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. So the animals they turned in, Got them food for a year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the second year and said to him, We will not hide it from my Lord. Our money is spent. You also have our herds of cattle. We've got nothing left in your sight but our bodies and our land. That's all that's left. Money's gone. Cattle are gone. Nothing left to trade. 
Wherefore shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants to Pharaoh. So they were willing at this point to become slaves or servants of Pharaoh in order to live. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold every man his field, because a famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. wonder how much analogy there is there. I hadn't really thought of this angle on it, but God says, the earth is mine. Heaven's my throne and the earth is my footstool. Everything on it is his. The gold and the silver is his. Everything belongs to God. He has granted us opportunity to dress and keep, to take care of this world, and we have failed miserably as people for 6,000 years, starting with Adam and Eve. And now he is about to begin the process of taking it all from us so the people all become slaves. And the one that he will allow to do that is Satan the devil and his false prophet and beast to start a new world order that's supposed to bring in peace and happiness and prosperity for everyone. But it's going to wind up with everyone losing everything they have. Now these people were, to one degree or another, pretty humble at this point. You've got it all, we have nothing, we'll turn our bodies over you anything, just give us food. Their attitude had changed. And the attitude of this world has to change before they're willing to accept the rule of their new king and savior, Emmanuel, who is coming. I think it's wise that we use Emmanuel now to separate from that Jesus that they are going to come, which is going to be a false Christ, and they'll call him Jesus, no doubt. I think God gave us an answer ahead of time that we can become comfortable with and use, and we'll know the difference. Well, these things are slowly taking shape. We're understanding better. We're grasping what God is about to do. So what he did to those Egyptians and allowed to be done to them, he's about to do to this whole world. And notice that he chose Joseph to lead this thing. And he is going to send some leaders here at the end that he is going to give everything to. His remnant will have everything they need and the rest of the world is going to go without. And most of them are going to absolutely die. Only those who will follow Joseph's lead will live are the ones who come who are in the same position that Joseph was in. See, God is going to put his leadership above Egypt, above Babylon, above everything that is around. And the rest of the world will fight it, tooth and toenail. But God will give power and strength and energy and blessing in such a way that they simply cannot prevail over it. God will put his people in charge. 
He did it with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. He ultimately did it with Nehemiah for the benefit of his people. He did it with Joseph over Pharaoh. Now, Joseph was working with Pharaoh, but ultimately God put Joseph in charge to call the shots. And God will do the same thing. Even if we find ourselves in a situation where there is someone else who has that God has given, we will find that God ultimately will put us in a position to call the shots on the things that are important to God. He will give us to be in charge. Things that don't amount to anything to God, we may not. But things that are important, we will be given the reins. That is the story of the Bible, the story of history, throughout any part of Israel's history you want to examine. Same was true right here. Verse 21, And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. So Joseph went ahead and moved the people around where he wanted them. They had given themselves as servants and slaves. They didn't remain on their land. He moved them around. Interestingly, a people who had become enslaved here later enslaved Israel in the land of Ham. And even we, in this end time, had not learned the lesson about slavery. And we enslaved a people. Not the way to go about things, but that's the way history has always been. To the victor go the spoils, and the spoils often are the bodies of the people that they were victorious over. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh, and did eat their portion, which Pharaoh gave them, wherefore they sold not their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have bought you this day uh, and your land for Pharaoh. So here's seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the increase that you shall give the fifth part to Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your household, and for food for your little ones. That's twice as much as God asks of us, isn't it? He took 20% for Pharaoh. God only asks 10% of us. Well, he asked 10% be kept back to keep his holy days and feasts. But that isn't for someone else. It isn't for Pharaoh. It isn't for the government. It's for you to enjoy the feast. So he only takes 10% to run his government and everything that needs to be run. But Pharaoh exacted 20% for Pharaoh. We should be thankful. God only requires 10% instead of begrudging that we have to give that. It's all about attitude. And they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. We'll accept the 20% tax, and we'll move forward. But Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt. To this day, the Pharaoh should have the fifth part, except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. And I'm sure that the people griped about that, that the priests didn't have to give up their land. 
So if God gives certain things to the ministry or the priesthood, people resent that. But it's God's doing. It's God's doing. He has a purpose in those things. And part of the purpose, I suppose, is that we might learn that God does things His way and we need to accept the way He does things. That is part of being broke to lead or to lead instead of planting our feet and being drugged. God will only drag you so far and He'll turn and loose the rope and say, that's the way you want to go, go. That's the way it is. What was the biggest objection that people had in worldwide to tithing and the offering system and the tithing system? Well, those ministers don't deserve all that. That was one of the commonest complaints. Now, I know there were abuses, and I know that the widows who went to the feast should have had accommodations the same as the ministry just as good or better because the second tithe and the third tithe was to be used to take care of the stranger and the widow, uh, the orphan, and the Levites. All four categories. But when they started taking the money up, they took care of the, the ministry, took care of the ministry first, and just barely gave the widows enough to eat hamburgers in an old motel while they ate steaks in a good motel. And that was wrong. That did not help the attitude at all. And I hope that we are changing that. In this group, the ministry doesn't live in anything any better than anyone else at the feast. And I eat precious few steaks at the feast, frankly usually only when somebody buys me one. So we're trying to do it right for a change. I live in a fifth-wheel trailer that I drag there myself, an old one at that, or just a regular pull bumper one I have been staying in, for the most part, instead of a fancy motel. I don't think that's right. If I stay in a fancy motel, then I better be good and well sure that the widow and the orphan and the stranger have one too. We can't make a difference the way they did because it automatically creates resentment and should not be. It shouldn't be. But Pharaoh made that difference with the priests, and God has done the same thing. So, it must be right. It's what God did. So we have to get in step with what God does. Anyway, verse 27, And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein, and grew, and multiplied exceedingly. The Egyptians even began to look upon them as rabbits. It's been told, and I don't know whether it's true or not, that Moses and Israel were known as rabbits because they bred rapidly and that the term rabbi came from the word rabbit. And he's depicted in petroglyphs as having big ears because he was the first rabbit or rabbi. Sounds far-fetched, I guess, but 
Maybe so. Because quite a little is made of Israelites being the ones that outbred the Egyptians. Of course, now Israel, for the most part, has started this planned parenthood and cut down the number of people, and all the Gentiles are outbreeding the Israelites today and taking over. So it isn't the way it was then. Things have changed. And it says that they will grow mighty and rise above us here at the end. And aren't we seeing it coming in from south of our borders? They are literally taking over and rising above us. And our middle class is sinking into nothing. But it was the other way at this point. They grew, multiplied, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. When the time drew near that he must die, he called his son Joseph said to him, If now I have found grace in your sight, put, I pray you, your hand on my testicles, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray you, in Egypt. Solemn promise or vow made by taking hold of a very vulnerable part of his body and swearing by that. You will not bury me in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers, and you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Promised that he would. Made the vow. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. His word wasn't good enough. You swear. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. I don't know whether I want to get into more or not. We've got... 20 minutes left before we're supposed to stop. Maybe we'll get into, go ahead and get into this a little bit. Uh, I, I want to go some other places here and, and take a little different direction next time, but at least we can get into part of this with the time we have remaining and at least get it introduced. Chapter 48 of Genesis, it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, behold, your father's sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Again, it puts Manasseh ahead of Ephraim since he was the firstborn. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, your son Joseph comes to you. So Israel, or Jacob, strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. He was on his deathbed, laying down, getting ready to die, and was sick. But he had something that he knew he must do. He had to pass along blessing because he knew the promises that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to him, and that that had to be passed on down because God was going to make a great nation of them and, and uh, bless the world through them. So he strengthens himself and sat up, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz and the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, now this is nothing Joseph didn't know, Things he'd been probably told all his life. But in a formal sense, Jacob wanted to pass something along, not just as a story, not just as teaching, but a formality. He wanted to be sure that everything was understood. It's like a will, a living testament. And God said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. So they were in Egypt, but he was talking about Canaan and the promised land where Abraham had walked. 
And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now Jacob switched the names and put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, even though it had been introduced to this point as Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Once you understand, those grandchildren are mine. They're blood-related to me. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. He said, just like my own sons, these two are going to be mine. Now today, we still have reference to Joseph, but we separate it, don't we? Not just Joseph, but we call it Ephraim and Manasseh. And that started on this very day right here. Because Jacob made it known to Joseph, you're not just my son here, but there's going to be a division. There will be a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh. They'll not just be known as Joseph henceforth. But I'm going to give them equal part like a son. That's what this is all about. They're going to be just like Reuben or Gad or Asher or whatever. I will not reckon them, in other words, as grandchildren, but like they were my own and they will receive inheritance separately. That becomes important as we go on. So as he starts into this blessing and this formality, it's already in his mind that Ephraim is to be set ahead of Manasseh. And your issue, which you beget after them, shall be yours, and shall be called after the name of your brethren and their inheritance. So he said, you may have more kids, but they'll carry the name of Joseph. However, for God's purposes, Ephraim and Manasseh will be named as sons of Jacob, not just of Joseph. So you can have the rest, but these two have a special place in the lineage of Israel, Israel being Jacob. So he makes this delineation. They'll be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. And as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way while we were traveling, when yet there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, or Ephrata. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the same as Bethlehem. And Micah 4 talks about uh, Bethlehem and Ephrata or Ephrath. The word Ephrath means fruitful or fruitfulness. And Bethlehem or Ephrata became very fruitful, didn't it, with the birth of Christ there later on in the story. So fruitfulness was where she died. Well, didn't her sons become very fruitful? Joseph particularly, along with Benjamin. So there was significance even in where Rachel died. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray you, to me, and I will bless them. Now, he was getting old and blind, as it says in the next verse. So he's bringing this story forward. He already knew, obviously, of Ephraim and Manasseh. But he was making a formal 
allocation of future blessing. So, now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see, and he brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. So he gave them a hug and a kiss, and Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, thought you were dead. And lo, God has showed me also your seed. I've seen your face, and I've seen the face of your sons. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees. They were still fairly small, it appears. And he bowed himself with his face to the earth. So he showed honor and obeisance to his father. Now his father had bowed before him and his brothers had, but he didn't get the big head and egocentric over it. He was willing to bow himself before his father here. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh's in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. So he, on purpose, made sure that Manasseh was at Jacob's right hand, and he put Ephraim at Jacob's left hand, because that was the birth order, and the primary blessing would come from the right hand. So Joseph made sure that the right son was under the right hand, at least in his view. And they brought them near to him like that. In Israel, who was pretty much blind and could hardly tell, stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head. So he crossed his hands on purpose. Now he couldn't see which was which. Why did he do this? Because he knew that in Joseph's mind, Manasseh should be under his right hand. And he knew that since that's the way it would be, he would have to swap hands on them. He knew what God intended to do. God must have let him know at some point what was the right way and what he intended. doesn't tell it in the story, but he had to have known. Because he's going to confer a blessing that comes from God, and therefore he had to have known what God wanted. Sometimes God does impart to people what he wants done and he does not always do it for everyone he imparted information sometimes to the leaders such as Israel that he did not immediately impart to others it had to be done I think you're going to see some of that here in the end time as well that is the pattern in which God works that information will come down when it's time for it to come down. That's the way God works. Now, obviously, Israel or Jacob here already knew what needed to be done, but he hadn't told Joseph until the time for it to happen. He wasn't holding out on him. He understood that there was a time for certain information to come out. Okay? We need to grasp and understand that. Because we may experience it. Anyway, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head in verse 14, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was indeed the firstborn. So he, but he did this on purpose, wittingly, knowing what he was doing. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Now he gave God great recognition here and honor. You've delivered me from all evil. You've been with me all my life. You've led me to this point. Now I ask you to bless these sons. And let my name be named on them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. So Ephraim and Manasseh were to be named after Jacob, as he had explained to Joseph before the ceremony began. The rest of them can carry Joseph, but these two are going to carry Israel specifically. Now they're still referred to here and there as Joseph, but generally in Scripture they are separated. And they are uh, in the blessings that are given in other places. Anyway, let's go on. We'll get there later. Let them grow in a into a multitude in the middle of the earth. The middle terrain of the earth, I think, is an interesting thing said here. The Mediterranean or middle terrain is not probably the Mediterranean that we recognize today. The Mediterranean is the middle terrain between two seas. And I think that the promised land, the real promised land, has that. You don't have a former and a hinder sea where Israel allegedly is today. You have the Mediterranean to the west, but you don't have a sea on the other side. You've got a broad expanse of sand known as Arabia and Jordan and so on there. The original Jerusalem had seas on both sides, and it was the middle terrain in the middle. So they would grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. They would grow and be the center, in the center of things. We'll get to more of that at some other time. Just another little hint here that may, everything in history may not be as it has always appeared. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it, it displeased him. And he held up, on, up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. Now Ephraim means double fruit. means double blessing in that sense. So Jacob realized he wanted his right hand on Ephraim's head to give him double the blessing that Manasseh would get, not the other way around. But Joseph was all alarmed. This is my firstborn son. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's backward. Do things seem backward to us once in a while and not being done right? Sometimes they do. But do we know everything God has in mind? Sometimes we don't. So we need to be very careful and very cautious. We need to do a lot of praying, and we need to be sure that we understand God's will, not just what we think is right. Because what we think is right is often wrong, brethren. And what Joseph thought was right, and he had every reason to think so, didn't he? He knew when those babies were born which one was born first. He knew the right of succession and what should be passed down 
through inheritance, and who should have the double blessing? He knew the laws, he knew the rules, but he didn't know what God was doing. Now, he would have argued in a court of law, but what he was trying to do and what he wanted Jacob to do was the correct course. And you know what? In a court of law, he would have won because it was the normal way of doing things. God doesn't always do things according to our rules, nor does he do them always according to his rules. I don't mean his commandments, his way of living. But he can change birth order. He tells us in Jeremiah 31 that he changed the birth order. Reuben had been the firstborn son of Jacob. And he was no longer the firstborn. Ephraim was not the firstborn son of Joseph, and yet God took him out and made him the firstborn. Changed the order. Now we'd say, well, that's a lie. It's not true. He was born first. No, no, wait a minute. God changed it. He has that prerogative. He can do as he pleases. And sometimes we have to suspend the normal rules because God has some surprises coming. He says there in Isaiah, I'll show you a new work, something you didn't know about. So here was one of those moments where God changed the rule for his own purposes. He makes the rules. He can use them as he chooses. We can't. We have to do it his way. He is the maker of the rules. So he said, wait a minute, Dad, you're doing it wrong. Verse 19, and his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. I know the rules. I know the birth order. I am quite aware of what I'm doing here. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, speaking of Manasseh. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude or a fullness of nations. If you go to Deuteronomy 33:17, it talks about the ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. So the prophecy that was made here literally came to pass. And if you look at Ephraim and the United States and Britain today, you have tens of thousands here compared to thousands there. We are a multitude or a fullness of nations. We are 50 sovereign nations who gave their uh, allegiance to one government in Washington, which is not one of them. It is a separate entity on separate land. It is not a state. It is a district. And we have 50 sovereign states here who gave their sovereignty over to Washington, D.C. So on the face of it, we are a multitude of states or nations, nation-states. It was not looked at, at that way before. 
But Manasseh, Britain, was there before this country was settled here at the end time. It was first. But the blessing, the double fruit, has been here. <laughs> you look at the production of Great Britain compared to that of the United States, and there is no comparison. This is certainly double fruitful, if not more so, than what they are able to produce over there. So there are a lot of clues that show us that, indeed, that which we might have thought had been reversed just as it was before Joseph. <clears throat> anyway, I'm running out of time now. So let's read on these next three verses. And he blessed them that day, saying, In you shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh, just as God says in Jeremiah 31. Where did the end-time work of the church of God begin? In the firstborn son, according to God's viewpoint, Ephraim. And this is where it flourished. This is where most of the growth occurred. This is the leading son of Israel in the end time. And God wittingly caused Jacob to make it that way. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now, they would not always stay in the land of their fathers. They would be removed from it, right? And in chapter 49, verse 1, he says, I'll show you that which shall befall you in the last days. So this wasn't a prophecy just for then. It was a prophecy that would go on until the very end of man's rule on the earth. So the pronouncement he's making here of Ephraim and Manasseh and which would be the leader, which would be the strongest, which would be the most fruitful, would be something that would go on down to the last days <clears throat> that they would be removed from their land and be brought back again to the land given to their fathers. Now, if that is not a statement, I don't know what is. I believe that we have been brought back after having been sent into slavery by ships. We've been brought back by ship to the original land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the seed was planted right here for that to happen. We'll have more to say along those lines as we get into Ephraim and Massa a little later on. So let's wrap it up there for today.